0: Hello, fellow foodies, and happy holidays. If you're looking for that perfect gift for your loved ones, check out my new book called The Plant Hunter. It is available on bookstore shelves across the US, Canada, and the UK and can be purchased online as a hardcover, ebook, and even an audiobook. I actually narrated the audiobook myself so you can tune in and relax while I tell the story of my life's journey in science, developing new ways to fight illness and disease through the healing powers of plants. It's a book about adventure, scientific discovery, medicine, and so much more. To learn more about the book or order a copy, head to my website at CassandraQuave.com. We've got a really great show for you. Our guest today is Paco Underhill. Paco is the founder and retired CEO of Envirocell. Global LLC. It's a behavioral research and consulting firm. He's also the best selling author of books like Why We Buy The Science of Shopping, which has been published in 28 languages. Um, He's got a new book coming out very soon, and we'll be discussing it today. It's on January 4th, and it's called How We Eat The Brave New World of Food and Beverages. And you can get your copy now through pre orders. So, welcome to the show, Paco. It's great to meet you.
1: It's nice to meet you, Dr. Wave.
0: So, why don't we start with some of the basics. The The premise of your book is that if you can understand how the food and supply chain works, you can make healthier um, dietary choices. Um, can you break that down for us? What does that really mean?
1: Well, let me back up here and just mm-hmm. just give you context, because I, th- I think okay. it's important to start at 5,000 feet <laughs> up. Absolutely. Okay. I am by training an urban geographer, and I spent the early part of my career as part of the crew that would rewrite commercial zoning ordinances for different cities across the country. Hmm. I had my moment of epiphany on the roof of the Seafirst Bank building in Seattle, Washington, where 60 stories up, I was installing the cameras to record the traffic patterns below. And there was a stiff wind blowing, Cassandra. <laughs> and I could feel the building rocking in the breeze. Oh, wow. You can't tell, but I'm six foot four. I tell a joke that I'm the only person I know that gets heightsick with two pairs of socks on. <laughs> up on the roof of that building with the building rocking in the breeze, I promised myself that I would reinvent my profession. A week later, I was standing in a bank in New York City and realized that the same tools that I was using to look at how a city worked, I could take inside a bank or a store or an airport or a farmer's market and start to deconstruct how they work. And therefore, my point of reference here is it is now 36 years of understanding food and restaurant retailing. I have worked in 50 countries across the world, much of that work testing prototype stores. So if you think of it, from Pick and Pay in South Africa, to Pantrasuca in Brazil, to Metro in Turkey, to Spar in Russia, and across the US and Mexico. Mm We also worked on some of the restaurant concepts where in 1983, I worked on the first salad bar concept at Burger King. It was astonishing because not only was I able to look at how people interacted with the salad bar, but I was also able to look at what were the seating choices of men walking in by themselves versus women walking by themselves at a typical fast food restaurant. So part of my my basis of information is understanding the supply chain of how things get to the store, to understand how people think about from a creative standpoint, packaging, how things and where things go on a shelf, much less to how we deconstruct a menu and the interesting differences between how different people in different parts of the world interact with the food chain and food retail so cassandra there are five things which which okay. this book deals with here first is our access to information and how that information is constructed and that varies from the nature of how we present a menu to uh the information systems inside a grocery store, to the evolution of signage in a farmer market, to how we access inf- information online. And how many people now actually pick up a cookbook and read it versus people who are using social media as a way of understanding, you know, how we how we peel a butternut squash. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I also know that the information systems governing how technology works and how we interact with it are fundamentally evolving. That if the 20th century was allowing us to get bigger, the 21st century is allowing us to get smaller. So that's one issue. Mm -hmm. Second issue is the role of gender, meaning that the most seminal event, Cassandra, since we as human beings tamed fire is probably birth control Mm -hmm. and part of what that has done is to fundamentally changed both our relationship to each other but also in a way our relationship to the earth okay and that is accelerated by a pan pandemic do you know cassandra that the number of households in north uh, america where the woman is the dominant bread earner goes up with each passing month. Oh, really? And part of the challenge that we face in the food industry or the grocery industry or the restaurant industry is it's generally owned by men, designed Mm -hmm. by men, managed by men. And yet, particularly in 2021, much less 2022, Mm -hmm. Women are your most important customers. And what makes something female friendly? Do you know, for example, our research has shown that a woman walking into a bar and restaurant will often pick her adult beverage based on what she's wearing? Really? <laughs> Meaning that if you're wearing a white blouse, are you going to buy a glass of red wine? You know, we 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 look at the male researchers and they go what are you talking about and the women go that that makes absolute and perfect sense but part of what is interesting here is what is a conscious decision and what is a subconscious decision okay and one of the premises based on our work is that what people say they do and what people actually do are often different and therefore The important part is observing what people do as opposed to just asking people questions. So that's gender is two. Number three is is time. And that as we think about the nature of our cooking experience, the nature of our shopping, how we deal with our kitchens, how we deal with our homes, part of what we're looking at is an evolution there too we move through our lives with a clock ticking inside our heads. And that clock ticks at a relative degree of loudness. And that our interest in being able to shop online or uh, access information is often governed by how much we have to do. And part of what we know, Cassandra, is that the female consumer is taking care of her, her job, she's taking care of her children, she's taking care of her home, she's taking care of her husband often, and how does she process her access to nutrition in that light? Mm. Next issue is what is global and what is local? Meaning that the way someone consumes in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the way someone consumes in Santa Fe, they may be within 100 miles of each other, but they're different. I think of the same thing in terms of El Paso and Austin, Texas, much less Duluth, Minnesota, much less how we consume in New York City versus someone in Belvedere, New Jersey. This is, is again, one of the things that is really interesting. And that local thing, as it relates to food, is, is an astonishing transformation that's gone on over the past 10 years, but particularly in the past two years, which is that the small scale farmer has realized that with four acres, greenhouses, solar panels, and a way to get direct to the consumers, the concept of the family farm, which was viewed as archaic 50 years ago, is a very viable concept today. And that if you go to the local farmer's market, the farmers have also realized that doing a little mild processing, or in some cases, some not so mild processing, is a way of adding margin to their income. So if you walk in, you can buy kimchi, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than cabbage. You can buy vodka that's made from 100 miles from where you are. And is that taking the global producers of adult beverages they are pissing in their pants because <laughs> and this is this is exciting i i i think and that as we come out of our pandemic world or how we adjust to it that the uh, ability of food producers to get local and consumers to get local but you know what part of the problem is is that We have worked with supermarket chains that put hydroponic gardens on their roof to grow leafy vegetables. And do you know what their problem was, Cassandra? They Mm. couldn't sell the volume they produced.
0: Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm.
1: And part of that is, is that we as consumers don't understand how we take leafy vegetables and use them in all of the ways that we possibly can. How do we use leafy vegetables making a good, healthy breakfast? I think this is part of what one of our challenges is and why I'm so glad to be on this program with you is that it is in part not just knowledge, but it is education and a little training that are going to get us to a better version of ourselves. The final issue here is um, the, the role of modern money we passed over a very magic moment in the history of our species in the mid-1990s. Because up until that point, the overwhelming majority of global wealth was in the hands of an aristocracy. Today, the overwhelming majority of global wealth is in the hands of people who made it in the course of their own lifetimes all across the world. Money has no peaches and cream complexion. Can you remember when you went into a city and if you chose an eth- ethnic restaurant, it was because it was cheap? Yeah. Whereas today, <laughs> right down the street, I have an Indian restaurant that is extremely elegant and is so- more than a little pricey. Yeah. Have you ever had a Korean taco? Yeah. Um, yeah. Part of what we're seeing is this, this hybrid where ethnicity mm-hmm. and diet, and if I look at the typical uh, American consumer of 20 years ag- years ago. He or she consumed roughly 30 different foods. That was it. Whereas the typical French peasant of the late 18th century consumed somewhere between 80 and 90 different things. Mm-hmm. I think part of what we're getting to now is that our choices in terms of the range of things that we consume and our understanding of seasonality and part of what this book is uh, about is first i believe in edutainment i want people to read this book and giggle and laugh and shake their shake their heads and be able to adjust their prescriptions so if you walk into your local kroger or your stop stop and shop in january and you're shopping blueberries Do you know that the freshest blueberries aren't in the produce section? The freshest blueberries are frozen in the frozen food section, where they've been picked and frozen within days of being picked and aren't two weeks old the way that blueberries are in January at the local Kroger. Doesn't this make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating concept of how our shopping experiences have evolved even over the past 50 years. I mean, and I know you've, you've written about this, about the, the, the rise of the supermarket chain. What can you share with us about, about that evolution and, and kind of where do you see us going in the future?
1: Well, I think there are a number of very poignant things. First of all, that the basic design of a supermarket hasn't changed since since it was invented in the early 1930s, meaning okay. that if you walk into virtually every market, the fixture farthest away from the front door is where they sell milk, hmm. which is the idea is to get you to the back corner of the store. Ah,
0: Okay. okay?
1: And that... The evolution in terms of how we place things, that meat is on the periphery, um, that is stuff that is is old and almost tired. Hmm. We also know that once we reach a certain age, Cassandra, maybe you haven't quite reached it yet, but I certainly have, (laughs) is that once we reach age 40, 80% of our weekly purchases are the same thing. We've already decided on the kind of mustard, the kind of dog food our dog likes, the kind of washing soap that we put in our dryers, the th- the things that work well. Why do I have to go and buy packaging that screams at me from the shelf when I already know what I want? Shouldn't there be a better way of both ordering it, packaging it, and consuming it in a way that makes sense? And yes, I still need packages that scream from the shelf. But if I've already made my commitment to something, how about I order it on some prescription basis or I deal with a smart kitchen? I've worked for Samsung for almost 15 years now. And you know, it isn't that hard to have a smart kitchen that keeps track of everything that's on your shelf and everything that's in your refrigerator, where it could send you a little note every other day going, Cassandra, darling, <laughs> can I place an order? Okay. And I think part of what is interesting here is we can go to other parts of the world and we're starting to see this, but we wow. don't have it here. That yeah, you can get milk in a Middle Eastern uh grocery store that comes to you in a in a recyclable container, okay, mm. where it's in a plastic bag. And having decided that I'm buying soap in that plastic bag, there's a picture that I put the plastic bag into. And the plastic bag is is compostable.
0: Hmm. Wow.
1: What if, Cassandra, Procter & Gamble sent you a notice going, can you tell us something about how you wash your clothes? Are you dealing with diapers? Do you have... um, Is anybody bringing home dirt on their clothing in the sense that they're gardening? And can you send us a water sample? And we will custom blend a soap for you. Hmm. And we will send it to you in a a compostable plastic bag which fits into this container that once you make the prescription, we will send you. Hmm. This is something where our grocery store is desperately in need of reinvention. And we can go to other parts of the world and see where that reinvention is starting. That's great. And well, do you know, do you know what the best place in the world to go see grocery innovation is? I think where? it's Mexico City. Really? Mexico, Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, and do you know part of the reason why is that there are women in senior management? <laughs> and they're they're making very creative choices. And that's something that we talk uh, about in How We Eat.
0: And How We Eat. That's great. Well, you know, I, I teach a class at Emory called Food Health and Society. And, and one of the topics that we got into in our last day of class this week was, you know, the the challenges that were unveiled during the pandemic around international shipping and the fact that we move our foods from one side of the globe to the other. and we're so reliant on this global shipping kind of, you know, very complicated system. And when there's a disruption, um, that can have pretty serious consequences. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on this global movement of foods? And do you think that that's also, you know, the realization of these limitations is going to drive us to do more local food production or not? Are we sticking with it?
1: Well, I think there are a number of things going on. First of all, big food is making its, uh, adjustments. I, I have a friend who is one mm-hmm. of the leading plant geneticists who is, uh, working on designing vegetables that mm-hmm. are meant for the supply chain where they take 10 days to get from the plant, the place that they're picked to that, the place they're consumed and mm-hmm. his work, you know, is both scary and really impressive the degree to which we are understanding how that supply chain works. Do you know, for example, that Walmart is the single largest buyer of organic produce in the world?
0: That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's new, right? I mean, they started doing that uh, how many years ago? I mean, it wasn't 20 years ago.
1: Walmart is, you know, for all of the issues that people have with with Bentonville and Mm -hmm. Sam and his history, um, there there's some very there's some very impressive work going on there. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, one of the things I think is good for us is 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 that big business is understanding part of what this challenge is and are mm-hmm. reacting to it, but also that the small producers are reacting to it. And I go to my local big Y here, and there's a, they are finally, showcasing what is, what is grown locally. Do you know, if you go to a Japanese super supermarket, they will often have a picture of the farmer and the field. Really? Which I mean, it is, great. but it is, it is such a painfully simple visual merchandising. And it's one of the ways to get people comfortable paying a little more for something if they understand where it comes from, and it isn't just, all oh, this comes from something, but this is the farmer that grew it. Mm-hmm.
0: That's great. That's really great. Well, as you were doing research for this book, was there anything in particular that really surprised you? I mean, I know you've been doing this kind of social research for a long time, but was there anything new that you came across that really surprised you when writing this book?
1: Um, what I really enjoyed was talking to the small farmer. Okay. Mm. And I was surprised that number of them who came from literary pasts or from academic pasts who looked at themselves in their mirror one day and said, I want to do something better with myself and my family. Mm-hmm. And the degree to which the word is out there, that you can make you know, a comfortable middle-class living. And there are people who will buy direct from you. Mm -hmm. Um, You are going to be able to send your kids to college. Um, And that the the concept of the small farm being economically viable in the 21st century. Do you know what what is interesting, Cassandra, is you know who were one of the major contributors to this? Is the marijuana growers of of holland and of british columbia who pioneered ways of using hydra hydroponic systems to grow pot Mm -hmm. and some of those systems are now being used to grow basil much less (laughs) baby lettuce that's great
0: (laughs) that's really great well um one of my other questions i had for you was really around you know how how do we deal how do we transition into this post-pandemic world like where you said you know there are more and more women that are becoming the primary breadwinners in households and making a lot of of, of decisions when it comes to what foods to buy um, in the home how do we how do we transition towards something that's more aligned with that future
1: are you a fan of Marion nestle Ness, uh, okay, yeah. Marion Nestle writes a daily blog, uh-huh.
0: um,
1: and is the former chairman of the nutrition D department at NYU. Okay. and I think one of the things which she which she talks about and showcases is that isn't it time that we as consumers took some control over how things are pre- presented to us? Mm. That if we think about, you know, baby shark cereal which had more than 40% sugar, <sighs> did that live on the cereal aisle or should it live in the candy aisle? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we're looking at and just in her her blog today, she was looking at companies using the word healthy in their packaging. Uh, don't we as consumers have a right to start defining what gets what gets put where?
0: Yeah. And
1: what what language people can use to describe what their products are. And that studies that are financed by particular industry groups that in effect are used as marketing exercises should not be allowed. That Mm -hmm. the Dairy Council shouldn't be sponsoring work on why lactose is good for you. (laughs) Okay, I I think there are a number of things that we as consumers in a post pandemic world need need to look at our regulatory institutions and go, hey, guys, it's really time that we took a little better control of this so that it's easier for us to understand sugar content, salt content, processed food content why should somebody be able to package a uh cranberry seltzer where the actual cranberry content in the seltzer is under three percent
0: yeah yeah
1: and since you are in atlanta Maybe you should go to that big beverage company in Atlanta and (laughs) ask them that question. Okay. (laughs) I have, but you might have a better platform to do it on.
0: That's great. Yeah. I mean, thinking about some of the issues, you know, as a mom that I've run into in the store, I've, you know, a lot of the, as you said, a lot of the, the foods that are marketed towards children, especially young children with the cartoons and all of, you know, the, the advertising that's, and it's also the placement where it's right at their level, where they see it when you're in the store, when they're in the buggy. I mean, I've had my kids have fits because I wouldn't buy them, you know, the super sugary yogurts, which really was more like a candy than, than an actual healthy yogurt. Um, but the labeling's very, very alluring with, with the cartoons. And then also it says, you know, with real fruit juice, but it doesn't really talk about all the corn syrup that, that's in there when you look closely at the label. So, I mean, I think that would be an amazing thing. I think a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of people that, that you know, are trying to make healthy choices would appreciate changes like that in the marketplace. I just don't know how, how that's going to happen um, because these strategies are so successful in, and and leading to sales of, of these foods.
1: Well, I think this is one of the reasons why buy online pickup at the store is so popular with parents with young children mm-hmm. is because they don't have to take the children in and they don't have to have the wine factor. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the exercises earlier in my career that I used to go through is that I would often give people a tour of a grocery store and I'd bring a skateboard with me (laughs) and I'd ask the manager to sit on the skateboard and roll down the aisle and see what it looked like from the vantage point of a four-year-old. And, you know, um, do I feel guilty that I'm maybe part responsible? for all of that marketing that is done at the height of a of a 5-year-old maybe but <laughs> i'm trying to yeah. make up for it now
0: that's good <laughs> it's never too late to make up for it it's you ha- you know all the tricks so <laughs> you can educate well, others is, yeah
1: i mean part of what's 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 been fun is that there are people who've been in the grocery industry for 30 or 40 years who I've sent this book to who just sent it back to me laughing, going, I have worked in grocery stores for 30 years and I've never thought of it or seen it the way you have.
0: Yeah. Well, for our listeners, you know, I guess the question on everyone's mind is probably how do we take some of the knowledge that you share in the book, Um, or that you can offer now even, how do we take some of that knowledge and know how to make better choices for ourselves when we are in the grocery store, inundated with all these signals and all these packagings? Like how do we make better health decisions?
1: Well, the the best advertising that I could have is that in the process of writing this book, I made a conscious effort to take my own advice. Hmm. And I shed 25 pounds. Wow. Okay. And part of what that was is, first of all, just being very conscious of eating processed food, Mm -hmm. being much more conscious of my sugar consumption and my alcohol consumption, Mm -hmm. Um, being very careful to take salt off the table and realize that salt was in many many of my foods and that if I used it, I should use um sea salt not ionized salt because i already ate fish Mm -hmm. um to be able to look at you know what my consumption of flesh was and not cut it out but target it in much much more creative ways and the other thing that i did is to make friends with my oven okay i discovered parchment paper and the degree to which you, there are so many things that you don't have to fry, but you can cook in the oven in a much healthier way. And you can do it almost as fast and they're really good and they're eminently tastier.
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah, I have some plans um, tonight to have some some oven roasted cauliflower. That's that's on our meal plan tonight. <laughs> it's great. well
1: I have a Turkish wife and she, Mm -hmm. cauliflower was never one of my favorite vegetables. And yet she has been able to get me to eat cauliflower in ways that I have never in my past. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's real exciting about, you know, is that you can change your diet and you can see the results of it reasonably quickly.
0: That's great. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Paco, for coming on the show. And uh, I really enjoyed going through your book. And I know the audience will as well. And again, um, for everyone listening, it's called How We Eat, The Brave New World of Food and Drink by Paco Underhill. It will be available on January 4th, 2022. And you can pre-order it now. Thanks again, Paco. It was great speaking with you.
1: Cassandra, thank you for doing what you do. I've really enjoyed talking, talking with you.
0: Thanks. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded here remotely. Um, I want to thank our producers of Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for all of their excellent work in pulling the show together. And thank you our listeners for tuning in each week. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.